Mike says, I hope they destroy your church next. You aren't of Christ, but a bunch of false prophets. You don't fool me. I'm not a young BLM member with his head up his rectum. S says, you're a false prophet gathering lost people to worship yourselves and not the true living God. You're not a church. You're a cult. David says, don't worry all those in your so-called church will have to answer to a higher power, God, and I got a feeling it won't be pretty. Yikes, David. Oregon resident says, you are a very sick type of church, teaching things not of God. Shame on you. EF says, Jesus did not teach about resistance. You people are deranged. Brett says, because you are furnishing food and supplies to BLM protesters and rioters, you are supplying food and supplies to Satan's army. Y'all are a bunch of false prophets. The first reading for the day comes from 1 John 4, 1 through 8. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into this world. This is how you know if a spirit comes from God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come as a human is from God, and every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have defeated these people because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. So they speak from the world's point of view and the world listens to them. We are from God. The person who knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Dear friends, let us love each other because love is from God and everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. And the second reading comes from Matthew 23, 29 through 34 and 37. Jesus said, Woe to you, religious scholars and Pharisees, you frauds. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate monuments of holy people, saying, we never would have joined in shedding the blood of the prophets had we lived in our ancestors' days. Ha! Your own evidence testifies against you. You are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Now it's your turn. Finish what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How can you escape eternal damnation? Look then, I'm sending you prophets, sages, and religious scholars, some of whom you'll murder and crucify, some you'll whip in your synagogues, some you'll hunt down from town to town. O Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, you murder the prophets. Stone those who sent to you. Oh, how often have I yearned to gather you together like a hen gathering her chicks under her wings. But you would, you would have none of it. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And man, it has been quite a journey in our hate mail series so far. We've got a couple weeks left, today and next week. So hang tight with us as we continue to work through this mail that's been coming in and kind of sort through the brokenness, the woundedness in our culture that expresses itself in this way. We know this hate mail doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from collective wounding. And so we really want to take a look at it. Not just react in pain, which is actually what's happening when the hate mail comes out, but to really sit with it, to say, where is this coming from? What is this about? And that brings us to today, false prophets. Now, let me tell you, the uh, hate mail that we get likes to make really wild claims, and a lot of people like to make references to scripture. Um, false prophets, though, like there's actually a lot of material to pull from in the scriptures about false prophets. This is not something like an offhand thing that Jesus said once that people like really narrow in on. This is something that's all over the Bible, is warnings about, about false prophets. What's a little less clear is how exactly to tell a false prophet from a true one, which is why it's so easy to just throw around things like false prophet. A lot of the scriptures in false prophets uh, about false prophets seem to imply that a false prophet is someone else. And that's probably true in the cases of those prophets and teachers and speakers who got their works into the Bible but uh, not necessarily helpful for our times of discerning. It's also kind of a lot of pressure because Jesus was really, really clear about who he was holding accountable. And while Jesus had an enormous amount of public and enduring grace for people who didn't have positions of power, Jesus was really harsh on teachers, especially teachers of any kind of religious law. So when we hear about the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious teachers of Jesus' day, the reason he's coming at them so hard is because they are claiming to represent God and doing it badly, doing it so badly that they are leading people into harm. And Jesus has very little patience for that. Knowing that, reading through the Gospels even just once should be enough to tell anyone in their hearts that they really should just never become a pastor. And if they do become a pastor, just don't preach. Don't ever preach. Don't be a preacher, lest you teach falsely and Jesus is coming for you. Now we know that Jesus actually had limitless grace in his own heart for those same teachers and for the teacher standing in front of you today. But Jesus is really clear that we take on tremendous responsibility when we claim to be speaking a prophetic word or claim to be teaching about the law or the will of God or the love of God. And so we need actually to take very seriously admonishments in scriptures about false prophets or false teachers. Not only to be on the lookout for those people who claim to be telling us about God and who are actually harming 
but also to make sure that when we speak about God, we do so with integrity, that we do so with discernment, that we do so with wisdom. And this actually is the truest, heart, most heartfelt kind of core reason that taking the Lord's name in vain is in the Ten Commandments. Taking the Lord's name in vain is not about cursing when you stub your toe or saying Jesus kind of errantly in a sentence. Taking the Lord's name in vain is about attributing the name of God to something that is false, about claiming the authority of God or Jesus or the love of the divine when really what you're speaking, what you're bringing into the world is against the love of God or somehow harms people, brings people out of deep relationship with the divine. So Jesus was clear with religious teachers that the harm that they were doing was real and needed to be taken seriously. And so that's why there are so many scriptures to pick from when you're sending hate mail saying, you're a false prophet. But as people who are receiving these concerns, we'll call them, how do we know? How do we know if we are acting as false prophets or false teachers in the world? Obviously, we don't think we are. Otherwise, we would hopefully (laughs) admit that, repent, change our ways. So far, we as a community have really stood by what we've been doing in terms of our justice work, our work to support the movement for black lives, our queer inclusion, and all the things that we're getting hate about. So how do we know that what we're doing is in line with the will of God? That we are in the vein of truth and not false prophecy or false teachings? How do we discern a true prophet, or as the scripture today says, the spirit of truth from a false one, the spirit of error? Well, there are a few clues in Scripture. And the Scripture from 1 John today helps us a great deal. The first thing that the Scripture says when it says to examine the spirits, examine the speakers and the teachers in your life to see if they are truly from God, is do they confess Jesus? Now, this seems like a really simple, straightforward one. And it's one that... uh, some folks like to think is as simple as, well, are they Christian? Do they claim Jesus? Have they said the sinner's prayer? But I'm not sure that that's what the scriptures actually mean about confessing Jesus. And I definitely don't think that that's what Jesus means. You see, Jesus would push back all the time on people who claimed to be with him, but didn't actually adhere to the teachings. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose... The river burst against that house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. 
Jesus is giving us a parable here, a deeply layered story for us to understand. But his thesis at the top is, people will call me Lord. People will claim my name. People will verbally confess Jesus. But if they don't act on it, if they're not changed by it, if they're not following the teachings, if they're not transformed by love, it's empty. It is built on sand. The firm foundation of Jesus' teaching gives us a kind of strength, a strength to endure, a strength to hope. And so in this world, when we are looking for true teachers and true teachings of Jesus, we have to look at the foundation. Where does this come from? Does this have a firm foundation or is it built on sand? The scriptures are also giving us clues as to what that foundation is. In 1 John, we know that it is love. God is love, and those who know love know God. So the foundation of this house, the foundation of these teachings, the foundations of our actions, which are the necessary confession of Jesus, not our words, must be love. If love is the foundation of our transformation and our actions in the world, that is how we confess Jesus. And so those who say, Lord, Lord, those who claim the name of Jesus and do it in vain will be shown for who they are when their house collapses in ruin at the first push of evil in the world, when it is not held firm by the foundation of love. The scripture goes on to tell us more about how we can tell a false prophet, a false teacher, or the spirit of error. They don't know love. They don't know love and therefore they cannot know God. Now, we know that no human being is all one or another thing. And we know that every human being does know love in our inmost self because that is the spark from which we were made and brought into this world. But we also know that the spirit of error is one of unlove, of unlovingness, of uncharitableness, unkindness. But there are different definitions floating around the world about what love is, and this can get really ugly really quickly. This contested definition of love means that there are a lot of people doing a great deal of harm and calling it love. It is a sort of love version of saying, Lord, Lord, but doing against the teachings of Jesus. When we say, I love you, I love you, and continue to harm one another, we are building a false house that will shatter under any pressure. There are some who will characterize rejection as love, who will say, this is tough love. I'm giving you tough love for your own good. They will weaponize rejection, pushing people away or manipulating people into doing their will and call that love, usually around some sort of moralizing. I'll be very direct and say this is what queerphobic and transphobic family members do when they reject somebody in the name of religion and they say, we're doing this for your own good because we love you. That is a lie. That is a distortion. That is built on sand, not on love. Another contested version of love is when people say unity. Love is unity. Can't we all just get along? 
because they are willing to paper over the wounds and the damage and the oppression that is going on by saying, well, can't we all collectively pretend it's fine? Can't you just stop talking about how hurt you are so that we can all get along? It often comes with a false equivalence, saying that all sides are equal here, ignoring power differentials and pain and history and generations of trauma. It is unloving to call for false unity, and yet that is so often what people do in the name of love or being loving. There's a similar adjacent definition of love that is about emphasizing politeness. I see this from all sides, even in comment sections, that when someone becomes too harsh, they will be accused of not being loving. And I think we all ought to be very cautious about this one. Not that we are invited to be unkind, but to take note that in the scriptures today, Jesus, again, being very harsh with religious teachers, so bringing his harshness to authorities who are using their power to harm, not folks who are kind of lower down on the food chain. But when he is speaking harshly to those teachers, he calls them snakes. He says they are a brood of vipers. He calls them elsewhere whitewashed tombs, that they are dead inside, that people walk over tombs and don't even know it because they are painted beautifully, but underneath they are rotting. That's not very polite. And I think that there are a lot of people who would see this behavior from Jesus and say, well, that's not very loving, Jesus. And I think we need to bear that in mind. What is the line here? Jesus is being harsh. And there is some sort of version then of love that is harsh. But Jesus is not tipping into rejection, that other cruelty sometimes called love. Jesus doesn't ever say, go away and come back when you've fixed yourself to my standards. Jesus doesn't ever say, you are not good enough. Jesus doesn't ever say, you are beyond love. Jesus says, you are hurting people. Stop it. And Jesus is unwilling to pretend that things are fine. Jesus' love drives him into conflict. But it is for that firm foundation. Jesus is building a house, building a kingdom, building a cosmos on the foundation of love. And so when we try and stick pillars in the sand, Jesus will rip them up. That is not what we are building here. That will fall down and hurt people. We must build this on a foundation of love, and I will be clear and relentless about it, and no, it will not always be polite. The loving ethic of Jesus is confusing, but it is the thing towards which we strive. There are other clues. How do we know? How do we know that we are acting as, uh, as loving disciples of the spirit of truth? First John goes on to speak about false prophets. The letter says that false prophets speak the world's point of view. Now, there are a lot of our own haters who would hurl this at us as well. They would do so on the basis of our queer affirmation or even our participation in the movement for black lives. They would say, well, the world is going the way of Black Lives Matter and um, political correctness and identity politics. 
So you are speaking the language of the world, speaking the world's point of view. But this is a red herring. Because just because justice, just because the gospel, just because the kingdom is making headway in the world, does not make it of the world. We celebrate when the ways of justice are being embraced. We mourn a little bit when we realize that the ways of the kingdom are being embraced outside of the church more readily than inside. We mourn and we weep. But we celebrate that the ways of justice and liberation are coming into this world. It does not mean that they are of this world. We know what is of this world. We know that this world is a place of oppression and suffering. That when you contrast the ways of love and the ways of the world, the ways of the world are things that are unloving, which is not the beautiful love between people, the call towards justice and the celebration of all humanity. It is capitalism and cruelty and oppression. It is hierarchy. Our greatest tool for knowing what is of the kingdom versus what is of the world is to look for that foundation of love. There's a book called All About Love by a black feminist brilliant thinker, Bell Hooks. And in this book, um, Hooks actually quotes Eric Fromm, who, who wrote back in the 50s, saying, the principle underlying capitalistic society and the principle of love are incompatible. I think that he's right. She thinks that he's right. That the principles of capitalism and the principles of love are fundamentally opposed to one another. Why? Well, for this, Hooks refers back to Martin Luther King Jr.'s words. When he was writing about segregation, he kind of made a throwback to Paul. Paul, when writing to Galatians, talked about how there were neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. That these categorizations of value need to be broken down. And Martin Luther King, his theology was very highly based on pers personalism. Personalism, meaning the personhood of human beings, was of utmost value. And what Martin Luther King saw was that segregation was fundamentally a shift from the I and thou relationship or the divine child of or the child of the divine child of the divine to i it it was the commodification of human beings it relegates persons said king to the status of things that is some capitalism right there the commodification of human beings, of persons, turning persons into objects, turning persons into use value, turning persons into profit. This commodification, this turning people into things, that was at the core of Martin Luther King's understanding of human evil and sin. The remedy? Love. And not an easy hand-holding, paper-over-it kind of love, but the deep, heart-wrenching, 
transforming love that says, I recognize you as a child of the divine. I recognize you as kin in my world. I recognize you as flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. And we must build a world together where no one comes to harm. It requires putting aside politeness. It requires tearing down false promises and false institutions. It requires stripping everything down to the sand and building only on that foundation of love and trust and mutuality. Bell Hooks in this book, All About Love, writes about how we have a spiritual hunger in our culture. She defines that spiritual hunger as lovelessness, this yearning for love that will not be satisfied by the world around us, that we were made for love that we simply don't receive, that we continue to yearn. She talks about how some of us look to the church She writes this. Organized religion has failed to satisfy spiritual hunger because it has accommodated secular demands, interpreting spiritual life in ways that uphold the values of a production-centered commodity culture. If that feels a little dense, I'll try and summarize. The church, both in Christian religion and in the world's religions, is an invitation towards love. And yet, organized religion, time and again, has sacrificed the true call to love and taken in its place all of the cultural trappings of commodification, of capitalism, of the status quo, and of the structures of the world, which are loveless and built on sand. Organized religion has spoken from the world's point of view and not from the point of view of the divine, which is love. And so when the church functions like a business, it speaks the world's point of view. When the church is oppressive, It speaks the world's point of view. When the church is racist or misogynist or ableist, it speaks the world's point of view. When the church turns people into objects and spirituality into a commodity, when the church fails to offer true and lasting and life-changing love, it is speaking the language of the world, not the language of the gospel. This is the core of false teaching and false prophecy when it is bereft of love. There is one final pro tip in the scriptures that I'd like to draw your attention to about identifying a false prophet. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is how they spoke of the false prophets. The world loves a church or a pastor or a Christian who speaks its language, who uses things like patriotism 
or money, or even just status quo culture, to keep things the way they are, to shift with the sands in support of the empire, instead of being willing to strip down everything to its foundation, to make sure that we are building on love. Our second scripture for today talks about how true prophets are received. What happens when you do have teachers speaking in a manner of truth, not as the false prophets do in the language of the world where everyone will speak well of them, but in the spirit of truth? What happens? Jesus sort of rages at this point in the gospel. And there is a real wounding there. You can hear the anger of this passage, but also the grief, especially at the end. He gets so angry at the teachers. And he says, listen, you build monuments to these prophets now, but you are proud of your lineage, and it's your lineage that murdered them. He says, look then, I'm sending you sages and prophets and religious scholars, some of whom you'll murder and crucify, some of whom you'll whip in your synagogues, some of whom you'll hunt down from town to town. Jesus knows that true prophets are always rejected, that the true teachings don't go over too well. We know what happened to Jesus But even while Jesus was alive, even before he was executed by the world whose language he did not speak, Jesus talked about the rejection he received. We began this series with a conversation about how the religious teachers of his day rejected both Jesus and John for exactly opposite reasons. John was too stoic. Jesus was too fun. And Jesus is referencing this, but in a much deeper and more painful way. You kill the prophets. Oh, sure, you'll build monuments to them, but not until after they're long dead. Because even worse than the murdering of those who speak with the spirit of truth is a collective forgetting. Does anybody know the concept of retroactive continuity? It's a way of making sense of the present by rewriting the past. We say, oh, we've arrived at a present, and the past doesn't make sense anymore, and so we're just going to pretend that it happened differently. But usually it's a lot more subtle than that. Retroactive continuity is piecing together a narrative that makes you the good guy still now. Jesus says this is what they did to the prophets. They kill them, and then generations later build monuments to them. And this is all over scripture as well. Stephen, who was one of the sent out ones in the book of Acts, right before he gets martyred and killed, says in Acts chapter 7, was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? And then they killed him. We kill the prophets when they are sent to us. But then how do they become monuments? Once prophets are dead, 
their message can be controlled, sanitized, stripped of its power. It's not just an ancient problem, it's something that still plagues us. In 1918, a union organizer named Nicholas Klein said the following at a speech of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America. He said, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, and then they attack you and want to burn you, and then they build monuments to you. This was a problem for the union workers, but you may have heard it that quote attributed to Gandhi or King or any number of other heroes who were murdered and then valorized. Because the same thing keeps happening over and over and over again. Prophets are rejected, slaughtered, sanitized, remembered. This happened to Martin Luther King Jr. This is happening now. How many of you have gotten into arguments on the internet about how Martin Luther King would be so ashamed of the Black Lives Matter movement? How many of you have encountered Rosa Parks as this little old lady who just got too tired on the bus one day? How have our heroes been stripped of their power, stripped of their convictions? Martin Luther King has been held up and tweeted out by corporations, stripped of his anti-capitalist message. Martin Luther King has been sanitized turned into a tool of the status quo, that same status quo who murdered him for the truth that he was preaching. And this is happening now because then Martin Luther King becomes the new benchmark that those same people who would have been against him in the past can now hold the sanitized version of him up and say, well, Martin Luther King wouldn't have approved of your Black Lives Matter movement. Martin Luther King Jr. was so much more uniting. Black Lives Matter is really divisive. I may be projecting when I say I know you all have gotten into arguments on the internet about this because these are hard for me to resist. The evil of taking those prophets, our prophets, the ones who have led us into new spaces, invited us into that foundation of love, and not only murdering them, but then stripping them of their power and using their own words against the truth that they preached is cruel and horrible. People didn't like Martin Luther King while he was alive. I mean, like some people did, and that was fantastic. But like people, especially white people in the United States, by and large did not like King. And that's not just like me speculating. We have data on that. There were polls. King's disapproval rating was more than 50% in the 60s. Similarly, in 1961, there was a poll across America, a Gallup poll, asking folks how they felt about the Freedom Riders. The Freedom Riders, who are universally understood now to be heroes, 22% approval, 61% disapproval in their efforts to desegregate buses. So when people say 
Well, I approved of the civil rights movement because they did it correctly. You should learn from them, Black Lives Matter movement. Know that those are the same folks. That is the same spirit of error that would have been chiding King and the Freedom Riders. Chiding at best. And actually, Black Lives Matter is remarkably popular. A poll taken in 2016 said that there was 43% approval for the Black Lives Matter movement, with only 22% disapproval. There were a lot of people at that time who still didn't know about the movement. I'm very curious what the data would show now. But if there are people who are telling you, King would have done it differently and better, who knows? He might have been able to help lead this movement if he hadn't been murdered by those same people who are disapproving of our work now. Prophets are never validated by the institutions and power structures that they are called by the power of truth and the spirit of love to tear down. Prophets are rejected for their teachings and for their identities, whether they're being impolite or too much fun or shining too much of a light on things that the world would rather us not look at. And though Jesus could get harsh about this, this is something worth weeping over. He finishes this rant with lament. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you murder the prophets, you stone those sent to you. How often have I yearned to gather you together like a hen gathering her chicks under her wings? But you would have none of it. It is worth weeping over. It is worth lamenting. And it is still worth hoping to gather ourselves together under the wings of our mother hen, God. But not in some sort of false unity, not in some sort of empty love that is just like those who cry, Lord, Lord. But in a true spirit of love, which is the foundation, not only of the gospel, but of the lives of those following along the way. We must build a foundation of love. And we will never get it completely correct. And we need to come with humility anytime we speak on behalf of God. And I pray that God helps me every time I open my mouth to speak to you. And I pray that God helps you to discern the truth and the untruth of anything that I might say. But we do so from a firm foundation of the love of the gospel. We do so with open and earnest hearts. We do so speaking a very different language than the ways of the world. Will you pray with me? God of all creation, we pray that you would gather us under your loving wing, that one day we might all be healed, that we may all be reunited. And God, in the meantime, may you give us courage not to trade your divine and transforming love for the hollow ways of the world not to be swayed by any teachers that would lead us into the status quo, 
but to forge ahead, following your prophets into the dangerous waters of love. God, we pray that you would give us wisdom to discern truth from error and that your love would be our guide along the way. Amen.